and thanks for joining us today for our podcast on apartment investing. We are here with Cohen Esri Apartment Investors. We have our president and CEO, Lee Harris, as well as our chief operating officer, Ryan Huffman. My name is Lydia Kincaid, and I'm the managing director for CEAI Fund 23 and Fund 24. So today we're going to talk about a big success story that just happened earlier this year, just a few months ago. We sold one of our assets in Fund 23, and we'd like to share with you the story of what drew us to the deal, um, what the equity stack looked like. Um, how we got from beginning to end and what kind of returns our investors realized. So Ryan, did you want to kick things off from the very beginning? What did we like about the deal and how did we start putting things together? Yeah, sure. Let me talk a little bit about this deal. So the property is called Sandtown Vista. Um, Sandtown Vista was a 350 unit apartment complex in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and there was a lot to like about, about this particular property. First and foremost, it was built in 2010. Now, some of you may ask why a class B built in 2010, you know, it was six years old when we bought it. We classify that as class B. And remember, we do that by age here. So we're kind of 80s to early to mid 2000s construction as class B. But we started looking at this deal and there was a lot to like. Um, let me give you some highlights. First and foremost, it sat in a very affluent area called the Sandtown Overlay District, which was part of the Smart Growth Corridor uh, in Southwest Atlanta. Household incomes averaging one mile were about $95,000, really due to our proximity to Hartsfield-Jackson, um, which was a big driver in that area. Second, we did a loan assumption on this property. And when you do loan assumptions, typically what you find is there's a bit of a discount from free and clear. In this case, we bought the property for $105,000 a door, which in that at that point in time, Properties were selling already for about 135 a door. So you can see we got a pretty healthy discount. Um, the biggest interesting part of this particular property is the, the class A rents in that area were about $1,800 a month. Sandtown's margin between the, at the top of the market rent and its rents was a whopping 71%, which is huge. And, and Lee will tell you, we try to target 30. So we were more than double that. And so there was a lot of runway. We didn't spend a lot on the property. It didn't need a lot. We only spent about $2,000 a unit. A lot of that was common area amenities, biffing up the pool. Um, we did some backsplashes and um, some fixtures in the units and really programmed about a $75 lift. And so it was a good play in a good solid area. Um, the most interesting thing about this property though is the capital stack. So we like to do complicated things, right? Lee, we, we like to make sense of complicated things. So that's our middle name. It's that's our middle name. So uh, let me walk you through some things. So of course we had our loan, um, but then we went into the equity side. And the first thing we had is we had a partner uh, of ours, a friend of the firm that had a 1031 exchange need. And so what we were able to do is accommodate that using a tenant in common structure or a tick and bring them into the transaction. And Lee, you might take a minute and talk about 1031 and what its benefits are and kind of how we program that into some of our deals. Sure, and it, you know, 1031 is actually a section of the Internal Revenue Code dealing with uh, tax deferred exchanges. And uh, there's some misconception about this in that uh, some people think that they can exchange a partnership interest uh, and that is not true. It has to be a fee simple interest in a like kind exchange. And so what uh, what happened in, in this particular case is 
uh, our tech, as you call it, tech partner, uh, actually sold a portfolio of properties and looked to deploy that capital in a tax-advantaged way uh, and defer their tax uh, uh, hit. And as, so uh, what they ended up with is a, uh, an undivided tenants in common interest uh, in this property. And Ryan, I think it was to the tune of 17 or 18% of the, of the total right. ownership. Uh, so we had our partnership on the one hand that had 80 some odd percent ownership. And then we had our friends that, uh, that did this tax deferred exchange through the 1031 with a 17 or 18 percent ownership stake. And we, we actually kept two sets of books. Uh, and it's quite unique. Uh, the, the investment on the part of the, uh, the tech party was in excess of a million dollars. And that's something that, by the way, we are willing and able to accommodate when lenders will, will play ball. Uh, but we need at least a million dollars to to get the the heft, if you will, uh, and, and make sense of the legal fees because there's some legal fees and some other uh, gyrations you have to go through to to create uh, one of these tick structures like this. But Ryan, that's kind of the, the the long and the short of it. And of course, our partners were able to defer their tax on the sale of their other properties. And, and then when we sold this particular property, I believe they, they also did another 1031 exchange. And so they continue to roll that tax liability forward. And I think that's a good, good description and delineation. You know, we don't typically do full tick deals, meaning we don't do a single property that has multiple tick interests, but one or two of them in our capital stack can work out pretty well for, particularly for friends of ours that need that kind of of transaction. Um, and the next piece we introduced was a crowdfunding component. And this came in the, in the way of a, I'm going to call it a smaller interest, but it was a preferred structure with Fundrise, now called RSE. And Fundrise sized up the transaction and came in with about 3 million of the equity, 3.7 million of the equity. Um, and the, they have a great product. Their product is static. Um, it doesn't partake in upside. You pay them a 12.5% current pay. Um, and as long as you do that, you could take them out anytime at par. And what that really does for the, the transaction and the capital stack is it caps a portion of equity. You know, normally your equity partakes in all the ups. They do not, they're capped at their return. And so it allows return in, in many cases to go up. In this case, uh, for the viewers out there, this, this particular capital piece increased our projected return by 600 basis points, which is a, a pretty large margin because they took a chunk of that equity. And crowdfunding is something you hear about a lot. And Lee, I'm gonna turn it to you to talk a little bit about crowdfunding in general. How do we feel about it? What are the pros and the cons? Because I think it's, it's really becoming a buzzword right now with a lot of groups. Yeah, crowd, crowdfunding, and there's really two, two ways that uh, we see crowdfunding. One is through accredited investors. The other is now the Jobs Act and the rules have been written for non-accredited investors. And so there's some cloud, crowdfunding platforms that are, that are available for, for non-accredited investors. In this particular case, I believe it was accredited investors 
that, that participated through this crowdfunding uh, program uh, that Fundrise offered. And uh, it's, uh, you, you may see a thousand or 5,000 uh, participants in a crowdfunding program. Uh, and uh, they may have as, as small an interest as a thousand dollars. And it's aggregated under the umbrella, uh, in this case, of Fundrise. Uh, so we only sent uh, 1K1, if you will, to Fundrise rather than uh, 1,000 K1s to all their individual investor, uh, investor group, however many there were. Uh, the, one of the downsides of this, and in particular, I recall this being an issue with, one of the, with the lender uh, having concern about uh, the rights of uh, the crowdfunding uh, investors and did they have any way that they could interrupt the transaction or uh, cause issues with the collateral for the lender. And so I think lenders have become more comfortable uh, more recently with the crowdfunding notion. But I remember that we had some, some long conversations with the lender in this particular case uh, to, to explain how the, the crowdfunding was not going to impact uh, the collateral uh, specifically. Yeah, you're right. That was a, a lengthy discussion, certainly. Um, and of course, the last piece was our equity. So in this case, you can see the capital stack had four components to it, um, all of which had had their piece. So, well, and Ryan, uh, let me let's stop there too, because we actually had two more pieces of equity, not just a single piece. We had the primary equity provider, uh, right. which is in, in this case a family, a multi-family office, and then we had Fund 23, Cohen Esri Apartment Investors Fund 23, which provided 10% uh, of uh, a 10% co-investment piece of the, the the final equity check that was uh, that was written by the family office. So uh, they got even even a bit more complicated when we are all said and done with it. No, you're right. It definitely did get more complicated. <laughs> well, you know, let's go forward. So we closed on the transaction and, and ran it. And as Lydia said, we're going to talk about the success of the sale in a minute. But we did have a lot of lessons learned on this one. Um, a few that are that are pretty critical. Um, one of those was when we closed the transaction, we had on site some staffing gaps. Um, I recall we had a manager that we'd hired that didn't come and show up and we really struggled to find a manager. And I will be honest in saying the property destabilized. And when we say destabilized, it went from, you know, 97% down to kind of the upper eighties. And so we had a slog to get back. And what we learned from that experience was really having that solid staff in place to go in on the acquisition was really pretty imperative. Um, the second lesson that we learned, and this was an interesting one on the positive side, was as we were closing, we found out that the seller was actually getting our $75 rent lift we projected without really doing much. Um, and so we were able to change the investment execution a little bit, maybe only doing a backsplash in a unit, maybe just doing some fixtures and still get more than the $75 lift that we had. So you know, being a little more conservative on the rent lift up front gets you, gets you on. So for the first year to year and a half, we weren't meeting projections. 
we actually swung back positive and, and got far, far closer and even exceeded a little bit our projections in the latter years just because we were able to quickly get our hands around it and, and really move the ball forward. So then came the sale and, uh, and it was awesome, Lee. I think it was one of our most successful sales probably we've done in a long time. I mean, the market was in our favor. We'd done what we said we were going to do. And Lydia, why don't you take it from here and explain how that actually went? Sure, sure. Well, I think anybody who's been keeping up with real estate knows what the market looks like right now. Transactions happen fast and they go at good price points for the sellers. Um, so yeah, like Ryan said, this was a big success story for our company. Um, we had projected the IRR for our fund 23 investors to be a 23.69%. We ended up at a 28.11% IRR for investors. And that was in a shorter amount of time than we had planned on as well. So our investors were really excited. And this was one of several that we've sold in the first half of this year. Um, so lots of good activity for our investors. Um, and just to give you some context for an investor who invested $100,000 in the fund across the 13 different properties, this one sale resulted in about a $10,000 distribution for them. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty nice return um, overall for our investors. And they've just been thrilled and we're, we're excited to continue riding the wave a little bit more this year if we can. Um, is there anything else, Lee, that you wanted to add about this sale? Yeah, so this was a property we purchased in November of 2016. Uh, <clears throat> we had a, it was programmed for a five-year hold. <clears throat> and as you can tell from uh, the date, uh, we sold this property in April of, uh, of 2021. We didn't get quite five years out of it, and yet we were able to exceed the projections. Now, uh, you referenced the fact that some of that was the market, and it was, but I also think that some of it was the, uh, uh, was the performance of the property, and it was really demonstrated quite well that uh, this property could outperform uh, the projections that, that we made. We tend to make fairly conservative projections. Uh, a $75 rent bump is a is a pretty low number these days. Ryan, on some of our other properties, we're seeing as much as what? How, how much rent increase are we actually getting in some cases? You know, it depends. I mean, we've got one property that we programmed 225 and they're up to 250 already. Um, generally, we're looking at 125 to 150 for the capital spend. I usually say that the rent lift is really a function of the capital spend, right? They're, you're going to have an ROI of what you're gonna spend. The more money you spend, the more rent lift you should be getting. Now there is a tipping point where you're gonna to spend too much and not get that dollar back. And so you really have to be cognizant of where you're positioned in the market, what the market's doing, what the submarket's doing, um, and really get scientific about if I put in this you know, extra backsplash, am I really gonna get an ROI on that or not? And if you're not, it, it at times doesn't make sense to spend the money. So sure. um, that's the best piece of advice I have with that is kind of the more capital you spend, the, the more rent lift you should expect. Well, and there's a softer side to this as well. So uh, we may have explained this before, but we really uh, look hard at the way we're delivering customer fulfillment, which is one of our five core values as a company. And there's all sorts of things that we do uh, at the property level to deliver customer fulfillment. And we measure that with a, a statistic called the Net Promoter Score, which is a, a worldwide 
uh, utilization uh, that, that asks a simple question on a scale of one to 10 or zero to 10 actually, how likely would you be to refer this apartment community to your friends and family? And uh, there's a simple math formula that, uh, that results in a score and uh, that score could be as low as minus 100 and it could be as high as a plus 100. Anything zero or above is good. And where we ended up uh, in the latter years with this property was a, a net promoter score well above zero. Uh, and I think that had a lot to do with the, the, the way we were able to increase rents uh, and maintain such high occupancy uh, because we worked very, very hard to deliver uh, more than what the customer was expecting. Uh, and so, as I say, it's a, it's a softer side of, of this whole story, but I can remember in the early days uh, after we introduced the net promoter score concept, and I believe we did that in January of 2018, and, and Sandtown was below zero for many months. And that told us we need to work harder to, uh, to deliver uh, customer fulfillment. And so with that renewed effort, we were able to, to, to get our, our resident clientele to, to stay and pay and be happy. And uh, as a result, that NPS score went up and, uh, and, and so did the rents. And uh, so again, the market helped us the, the performance of the property helped us, but the performance of the property was was aided greatly by our commitment to customer fulfillment. I think that ties in really nicely to what Ryan said at the very beginning. You know, one of the lessons learned was getting a really strong team in from the very beginning, and we missed that at the very beginning. But once that team was in place, they really took the property to new heights and were able to execute the business plan and perform even better than what we had expected. Well, so that's right. And Ryan, I want to I want to go back to one granular item that you mentioned, and that's the household income. Uh, when we're evaluating assets to, to acquire, I know that's one of the things that you and your team look at very, very hard, and that's household income within a radius. Go into that a little bit, a little bit more though. What's what's the benchmark that you're usually looking for, and what's the radius, et cetera? So we look at those on a one, three, and five mile radius from, from what I call the epicenter, which is the property. Um, <clears throat> we use a 50,000 and greater number. So the household incomes have to be 50 and growing. So I don't view snapshots in time without what I call a trend. Um, so let's say it's 50 today, but if the trend is going south, then you could be in a situation where you've got a deteriorating submarket. Um, so you're really looking at the shot in time, but you're looking at what's it been doing and what is it going to do? What is it forecasted to do? And we really use that for a couple of reasons. One, we want to see that we're in a growth sector, really at a micro level in the submarket in a growth area. Um, second, you know, we're in the value add business, right? We're spending money to raise rents. We want to see that folks have the ability that are living there to see the value in what we're creating and, and pay those rents for the, the value that's been created. So it's really, you know, you can set it at whatever number, 50 seems to be a good solid number for us in terms of what our rent to income ratios would look like. Um, but that's the benchmark and the reasoning behind that particular metric when we're, when we're reviewing property. Great, all right. 
Well, great. Um, I think that wraps things up for our analysis on Sandtown. Thanks everyone again for joining us on our apartment investing podcast. And thanks Ryan and Lee. We'll talk to you all next time. Thank <laughs> you.